I'm Moya Andrews, and welcome to Profiles. On Profiles, we talk to notable artists, scholars, and writers, and get to know the stories behind their work. Our guest today is Professor the Honorable Gareth Evans, who is Chancellor of the Australian National University. Welcome, Professor Evans. Good morning, Moya, and very nice to talk to you. Now, how do you happen to be in Bloomington, Indiana? Well, it's a straightforward story. Michael McRobbie is an alumnus of the Australian National University. Lee Feinstein, the dean of the new School of Global and International Studies, is an old colleague of mine when I used to be Australian foreign minister and was on the international trail. And I think the two of them just got their heads together and thought it might be a nice idea in the inaugural year of the Mm -hmm. school to get someone to give a little bit of a practical cast uh, to the students in describing you know, the way the world actually works uh, in practice from the perspective of someone who's been there in the middle of the action for quite a long part of his professional career. Well, that's an excellent choice, and you're called Distinguished Diplomat in Residence. Well, it's a very exalted title, <laughs> and I'm not sure that I've ever been much of a diplomat in terms of the way I've conducted myself internationally, but I've never been a professional diplomat in the sense of being an ambassador, but I have been a uh, foreign secretary uh, I've been a cabinet minister for a long period, 13 years, in uh, the Australian government. And uh, I guess it was thought by the president here and the dean uh, that it might be good to give a rather flash title to someone like me to just give a little bit of prominence to the new school and to indicate that the school is very serious, as I know it is, about becoming a a cutting-edge school of public policy and international studies in this country. I think it's really destined for great things, and I'm delighted to be here at the very early stages of the, the project and to be part of it. Well, I'm delighted because as a fellow Australian, it's very nice to have you here. And what have you actually done? Well, what I've done is I've given over the last uh, couple of weeks nine two-hour seminars on the theme of international security policy making in practice. Uh, because it's the summer term, it's been quite a small class, less than 10, but very high quality, I have to say. Great students, mixture of PhD students and master's students and a couple of undergraduates as well, now, together with uh, some others auditing the class, including an 80-year-old retired professor of, uh, of biology, uh, which has added a, a whole new dimension to the discussion. But it's been great. Uh, so I've done that over the course of the last couple of weeks. And associated with that, I participated in an international roundtable on the subject of genocide, mass atrocity crimes, which is one of the areas in which I've been very much involved over the years. And I've done the opening address at the Institute of uh, Campus uh, Internationalization, which has been running a conference here for people drawn from all around the country through the uh, one of the one of the schools, the centres here, and on the subject of educating for global citizenship and talking about the kinds of responsibility we should try to inculcate in our students as they confront a very much more complex and interdependent world than it used to be. And so it's been a fascinating combination of uh, formal academic classes of side conferences and events, plus a pretty heavy social program, I have to say, of lunches and dinners with senior faculty, the president, and uh, and getting to know in the process quite a number of people around this very beautiful campus. So it's been, been a fascinating period. Well, I'm really glad that you've had a good time. But we have kept you very busy. You'll probably sleep on the plane going home. <laughs> oh, I guess I will. Now, tell me, have you 
and of course, this is just a generalization, but have you noticed any major differences between ANU and IU? Well, you can't help but uh, notice the size difference for a start. I mean, just the Bloomington campus here is well over 40,000 students. The whole of the Australian National mm-hmm. University, which is quite a small university, um, is only around 18,000. We do have similar campuses in the sense that ours is a lot of open space greenery in a natural sort of amphitheatre surrounded by hills and we think of it as rather beautiful, but I have to say the, the core of the Bloomington campus is one of the most beautiful I've ever seen. And I'm staying in Bryan House, right bang in the middle of the campus, surrounded by this lovely woodland with rabbits and squirrels and chipmunks hopping around. And, uh, and it's, how it's really, really quite idyllic. How do you get around? I get around by bicycle. It's in the finest traditions of, uh, of students and faculty. That was a, a condition of me coming here for a couple of weeks that somebody had to find a bicycle for me. So uh, that's been very nice. So um, just backwards and forwards to classes which have uh, been down in the Mara or the law school. Then wandering down uh, you know, 4th Street to that line of little restaurants for, for lunch and then exploring some of the other great restaurants in this uh, really excellent uh, little town for uh, for dinners and so on. So, I've really, so the food has impressed you? The food has impressed me, the atmosphere, the environment has impressed me, and the campus life has impressed me. And one night I went to a baseball game and saw uh, Indiana, the Hoosiers playing Ohio State to get themselves into the Big Ten playoffs, and uh, that was a fabulous evening too. So I've, had a, pretty, a I've had a pretty good set of experiences while I've been here. Well, I'm so pleased. Now, you've had a very illustrious career in Australia. As an Australian, I have known about you for many years. That's made it very nice for me to see you in person. But you've written 11 books. How did you have fine time to write 11 books and have the kind of career you've had? Well, some of them have been edited books rather than writing the whole of them myself, and some of them have been co-authored or co-edited. But uh, no, I've always had that bent all the way through my career. I started out as an academic. I taught law after coming back from Oxford University. I practiced law for a little while, and even all those years that I was in politics, um, 21 years in fact, 13 of which was a, a cabinet minister in various portfolios, I did constantly try to keep up you know, the writing and thinking about what I was doing rather than just doing it, which I guess makes me a little bit unusual. And in my later life, working for International NGO, which we'll no doubt talk about a little bit later on, the International Crisis Group, uh, and getting involved as I did in big policy issues like genocide, mass atrocity crimes, and like nuclear non-proliferation disarmament, um, it seemed to me to be important not just to be out there talking, but actually committing something on paper so that whatever contribution I made had a little bit of permanency about it. And I also kept a cabinet a diary when I was a cabinet minister for two or three years of the 13 I was there. And last year, even though it was 30 years old, those experiences, uh, I published, Melbourne University Press published that uh, edited diary. And uh, people found it quite fascinating to get a, a sort of an insider's account of, of how the, the nuts and bolts of government and the clashing personalities and all the rest of it actually worked. So it's right across a spectrum of different subjects that I've, that I've written over the years. But that's impressive. And of course, as listeners may not know, uh, you worked with Hawke, who was one of our famous prime ministers, and Keating, who was Yeah, another. I was in the Labor government of, well, first of all, Bob Hawke, and secondly, Paul Keating, over the the whole uh, 13 years of it from 1983 to 1996. I started out as Attorney General, which is a position very much like the American Attorney General's position with policy responsibilities as well as oversight of the administration of federal justice. 
Then I moved to uh, resources and energy, what I used to call pipes and holes. I was responsible for uh, oil and coal and uranium and gas and uh, you know, both exploration, production and, uh, and retail energy supply around the country, those big issues. Then I was Minister for Transport and Communications, which was a great big compendious portfolio back in the days when there was still a lot of state-owned enterprises mm. um, in the area of telecommunications and road rail, sea and air. And I had the, the oversight of, of all of those at a national level, making the transition from um, largely state-owned enterprises to what became subsequently privatised enterprises. But I was in the middle of the, the intermediate corporatization phase of that. Then uh, I uh, became uh, foreign minister, finally for eight years, from 1988 to mm-hmm. 1996, which was during a really, really fascinating period, the end of the Cold War, the opening up of a, a sea of possibilities for creative international activity. and. Australia was right in the middle of a lot of different things, and uh, it was an extraordinarily interesting period. Well, you're very well known because of your work in in Cambodia. Could you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, the Cambodian peace plan was, I think, one of the things that I'm I'm proudest of uh, helping to put together. People will remember that Cambodia was the scene of the horrific genocide perpetrated by the Khmer Rouge, which came to power during the Vietnam War years in 1975 and drove millions of people, probably two million people, to their deaths, either through outright execution or through malnutrition, starvation, sending them out to labour in the fields, the killing fields. Then when they were overturned, the Khmer Rouge, by the invading Vietnamese in 1978, the country went into a period of protracted civil war, which continued all the way through the 80s. And there were large numbers of displaced people, hundreds of thousands Mm -hmm. of people in refugee camps on the Thai-Cambodian border. And it was just one of those intractable, continuing, running, sore conflicts that urgently needed uh, attention. But people found it very hard to find a way of solving it because it was incredibly complicated in terms of internal divisions of the warring factions and parties, external support uh, from the region divided between the Vietnamese supporting their own guy running the government, Hun Sen, and the other ASEAN, Association of Southeast Asian Nations countries, uh, supporting the you know, the opposition to that incumbent. You had, uh, among the big powers, um, the Americans supporting the non-communist opposition, the Russians and supporting the Vietnamese and the dictatorial incumbents, and the Chinese still supporting the Khmer Rouge. So it was an incredibly complex game of regional players, global players, local players. Attempts had been made within the region to find a solution, but none was forthcoming. I had a meeting in New York with Stephen Solas, who some people may remember, an American congressman, very mm-hmm. prominent for a number of years, who was heading the Asian East Asian Committee of, uh, of Congress and a very, very noisy advocate of all sorts of, uh, of good causes. I knew Solas. I met him in New York, and he suggested to me, he said he's having enormous difficulty in selling this idea to anyone in the US government, but maybe I could pick it up and run with it. And the idea essentially was for the UN to become the central player in the conflict resolution, not just Mm. by hosting diplomatic talks, which the UN had done various contexts from time immemorial, not just running a peacekeeping oversight monitoring operation if a peace was negotiated by someone else, 
but actually doing and not just even sort of oversighting elections, which might then be cool, but rather the UN being the central player in the whole operation and the UN taking over, in fact, the transitional administration of the country uh, during a, a peace settlement period, which was a wholly unprecedented role you know, for the UN and not yes. something that was very popular then or now in this country. I thought the idea had the germs of a breakthrough. And um, I did pick it up and run with it. And it's a long and complicated story, but Australia engaged in some very, very active diplomacy over a two or three month period at the end of um, 1989. With me working very closely with my Indonesian foreign ministerial counterpart, uh, Ali Alatas. And basically, we pulled it off. Uh, we, what a wonderful we, we, achievement. Uh, with, with a lot of help in the latter stages, I have to say, mm-hmm. from the permanent five members of the UN who came into the play when they saw this as the way through it. But the whole point of it really was for the UN role to be a face saver for the Chinese so that they mm-hmm. would withdraw from their support with finance and material for the Khmer Rouge, which they weren't prepared to do if it was simply a matter of handing it over to the Mm. other guys Mm. who they didn't like at all. There had to be a face-saver, as there so often does in diplomacy. There has to be a face-saver now for the Iranians in terms of having a notional right to enrich uranium. They're not going to give up their capabilities um, exactly, without yes. something of that kind, which is something you learn very early on in this business. So the Cambodian thing, and, and there's a long and complicated story again about how the transitional process actually worked and it had its ups and downs. And although we did bring peace to Cambodia, and I have to say one of the most moving experiences of my life was watching those queues of tens of thousands of Cambodians coming to the polls in 93. Uh, um, For the election. For the election mm. period, knowing that there was a risk of being assaulted by the Khmer Rouge, who was still active in the country, knowing there was a risk of being bombed or shot, but lined up in there, hundreds of thousands, wanting to exercise that vote and take charge of their lives again. That and, must have uh, been one of the most yeah, moving Yeah, it was just in- incredibly moving when see. that sort of things happened. So we did bring peace to the country. The refugees and displaced people came back, and the country's had a, a reasonable measure of stability and prosperity ever since. But I'm afraid we didn't succeed all that well in our aspirations to bring true democracy to the country oh. and genuine human rights protections. That's still very much unfinished business, but um, that's life in this, yes. in this business. And um, what you achieved was really significant, but but one never gets everything one wants. Absolutely not. Though you seem to be the very optimistic kind of person, and you seem to make the most of whatever life throws at you. So tell me about your first musical selection. <laughs> well, I thought it might be fun to, to think back right in my very early days when I was a kid in the early 50s in Australia. And I used to go with my mother would you believe, on Friday nights to the local cinema. My dad was a shift worker and you couldn't get him out and about, but my mum used to love going to the movies. And this was the golden age of American musicals. And one of the musicals I remember best from that period was, of course, Oklahoma. And I thought that wonderful opening Gordon McRae song, Oh, What a Beautiful Morning, would be very appropriate now that I'm here in Bloomington, Indiana in spring. There's a bright golden haze on the meadow There's a bright golden haze on the meadow 
The court is as high as elephants high, and it looks like it's climbing clear up to the sky. Oh, what a beautiful morning! Oh, what a beautiful day! I got a You're listening to Profiles on WFIU. I'm Moya Andrews. Our guest today is Professor the Honorable Gareth Evans, who was Foreign Minister in Australia for eight years between 1988 and 1996. Currently, he serves as Chancellor of the Australian National University in Canberra. I'm fascinated by the fact that you have some passions that are threads throughout your whole career and even into retirement. Uh, One of them, of course, is the concept of the responsibility to protect. And I wonder whether you can tell us a little about your early life and whether or not these passions arose out of any particular um, aspects of your early well, my very early life was pretty uneventful. I was just a kid of um, working-class parents. My dad was a streetcar driver. My mum, both of whom, they left school very early in the Depression years and didn't realise their potential at all. Uh, my mother just ran a little um, child clothing manufacturing business from home. And I went to just state schools. Luckily, I won a series of scholarships, which mm. took me all the way up through the system to and eventually to Oxford to university to do politics, philosophy, economics, to add to the law degree I had from Melbourne. So I I was quite well equipped, I suppose, to to face the world by the time I finally emerged from that process. But along the way, particularly in my young university student days, I did have a number of quite vivid experiences, which I do think helped set the course for some of the major preoccupations I've had in my later professional life. I'll I'll tell you two of those experiences. One that did give rise, I guess, very largely to this passion I've had to try to address the question of genocide and other major crimes against humanity, war crimes, atrocity crimes generally. It really does date back to experiences I had in Cambodia in the late 60s when I was wending my way from Australia to Oxford to study, taking about four or five months to do it, traveling Mm. a lot of time overland, in fact, through about 20 countries in Asia and South Asia and North Africa and Middle East, Europe. In Asia, uh, I should preface this by saying, in almost every country I went to, whether it was Malaysia or Singapore or Indonesia or Afghanistan or Nepal or India, I had wonderful experiences just by hanging out with students on campuses in drinking beer, eating noodles, or, you know, careering around the countryside and share taxis or buses or hard-class trains. Now, did you know any of these people, or did you just no, I, no, meet I, them I, by I, chance? I didn't know anyone at all before I went. I just, no. I just turned up, as one does. Uh-huh. But um, you sort of you wander around campus and you get into conversations, and I guess uh, Australians on the road were a little more exotic then than they are now. There's uh, armies of them out and about doing these things. But in the course of those travels... In later years, 
I kept on running into either individuals that I'd met during that period, and two or three of them ended up in quite high places in government, and it was fun to catch up and recognise each other after all those years. But more often it was a matter of meeting people from that generation who'd shared Mm. the same Mm. kind of experiences. But there was one country from which in later years I never met anyone of that generation, any of that class of youngsters who I had spent time with. That country was Cambodia. And the reason for that is really pretty unhappily straightforward. They're all dead. Mm. They're either killed outright, executed outright as spectacle-wearing intellectual enemies of the, mm-hmm. the state, or they were driven out into the, the fields and died of malnutrition or disease. Now, so many of their compatriots did, particularly the university, the educated mm, class mm. of people. And it made me, this all happened uh, seven or eight years after I'd actually been in the country, and it made me realise in a very direct and very personal way just how critical it was that the world did not again turn its back on these kind of events, that we didn't go on regarding them as none of our business, as essentially we did in the 70s, as essentially we did in the 80s and even the 90s. When you think of Rwanda, you know, it was just black African tribes, people chopping each other up, which they've been doing from time immemorial, nothing to do with us. And Mm. we Americans ran into problems earlier in Somalia with the Black Hawk down, and we didn't want to again take any risks. And so the world stood by in Rwanda while... 800,000 people were chopped to pieces in the space of two or three months. And then we stood by again in the Balkans uh, just a year later after Rwanda. People remember in Srebrenica Mm -hmm. when the UN, not properly equipped, not properly mandated, stood by while Serbian militias took out 8,000 men and boys from notional UN protection and killed them over the space of a couple of days. And then the... The story of Kosovo, which people will remember mm. in the late 90s, when the world did intervene, when the US led a coalition of the willing to deal with another genocide, but in the face of hostility in the Security Council, the threat of a Russian veto. So although the action took place, it wasn't properly legal, it wasn't properly mandated. So the, there was a consensus-free zone about how to deal with this. And and going back to my, my student days that I've described... I pledged myself, you know, around about that time. If ever I had the chance to do something about that, I would. And perhaps we can come back later to the evolution of this concept of the responsibility yes. to protect, which grew out of that. Um, the other thing I, I suppose influenced some of my passions and preoccupations of later years was a student trip. I did a different trip to um, to Japan, the very first time I'd ever been outside the country. This is back in 1964, the year of the Tokyo Olympics, but... Just 20 years after the end of the war, nobody spoke a word of English. I went up there. I got a little legacy from an uncle, which uh, I immediately blew on a student trip. Um, a good way to spend the Yeah, uh, and I thought, well, maybe I'll get to see all these other countries going to England at some time in the future, going to Europe. But how in the hell am I ever going to get to Japan again? And there was the, the student organization countrywide organized these, these trips with cheap fares. Back in the days before cheap air flights, mind you, this is in the mm. hold of a ship, a cargo ship, which took 10 days to get oh, up there. Oh, I remember so, those. So uh, we were sitting there, this little group of 20-odd students down in iron bunks next to Chinese sailors playing mahjong all day and all night. So it was a memorable experience. But in Japan, I had a particularly memorable experience in Hiroshima. 
the site mm. of that terrible, terrible, catastrophic bomb blast in 1945. And I remember in particular in the Peace Park, which exists there and in the museum associated with it, there's a block of granite which had been part of the stair, stone staircase leading up to a, a grand public building. And someone had been sitting against that in the sun the moment the bomb exploded. Uh-huh. And that person had been instantly obliterated, incinerated. But in the millisecond that that was happening, the granite around that person's body had crystallized at a slightly different rate than it crystallized, you know, because of the intermediate Mm, existence mm. of the body. So there was a shadow, a shadow cast. Of the person. A mineral shadow cast of that person sitting on the wall. And of all the... All the the other memorabilia and all the photographs of the havoc and the devastation, all the terrible stories, that that just made an Mm. extraordinary impression. I mean, again, I said to myself uh, at the time, if ever I get any opportunity in my later life to work for the abolition of these terrible weapons, the most indiscriminately inhumane ever known, uh, then I'll try to do so. So that, again, has been uh, a bit of a preoccupation over mm. over many years now. Not making much progress, I have to say, but uh, we work away at it. Well, it's interesting how your travels as a student have uh, shaped your thinking, and I suppose you're an advocate for uh, students to see other countries and to have these kinds of experiences? I sure am. I think it's fantastically important. These are really formative experiences. You only really get when you're out and about, outside your comfort zone in other countries, other cultures. So I think it's tremendously important that um, we as universities welcome international students to our shores and give them some fascinating experiences they might not otherwise have. And I think it's terribly important that we, as students, our own kids, um, go out and travel, travel, travel to not only study in other countries, but to maximise the amount of experiences they get along the way. Get outside your your comfort zone, Mm. go into strange places. I had one other experience, I suppose, which was particularly formative in that trip that I described, the long trip. Um, I I was crazy enough, this is in the uh, the late 60s, to to go to Vietnam in the height of the Vietnam War. So Mm. I I fetched up in Saigon Airport which wasn't exactly geared for backpacking student travellers and uh, had a heck of a lot of difficulty even getting, finding my way into the centre of the city and then even more difficulty finding some kind of accommodation. And the cheap hotel I eventually found, frankly, was more geared up for rather shorter stays than <laughs> I had in mind. Um, I can imagine. And it was really pretty squalid. And on the first night I was there, I had one of those other experiences which remained indelibly etched in your memory, and it was... Um, there was a hubbub out in the corridor outside my room, middle of the night. Went to the door and looked out, and there was a, a large GI beating the hell out of a half-naked Vietnamese girl oh. with a broomstick, and she was running down the stairs and screaming. And it was just a sort of an encapsulation of all the horror, the misery, the squalor that is associated with contemporary war, however mm. much we, you know, put a, a different face on. Oh, I'm not a pacifist. I'm all in favour of going to war when circumstances cry out for it. I'm all in favour of military interventions in atrocity crime situations, which can only be dealt with in 
that way, for example, Rwanda that we've already talked mm, about. Mm. But the notion that there's any nobility, the notion that there's any romance, the notion that there's any anything other than sheer unadulterated misery associated with the conduct of war is, uh, is you know, one that stayed, stayed with me. Um, there's, there's no romance. There's nothing other than misery. And uh, we should work like hell to try and avoid ourselves ever getting in that situation again. And again, that's something that I've devoted a lot of time to as foreign minister, conflict prevention, resolution. And during my time uh, after I left Australian politics as head of the International Crisis Group, running a big international non-government organisation mm. out, of, out of Brussels, devoted to conflict prevention and resolution. That's very interesting. And let's go to your next, your next uh, music selection. What do you have for us now? A really formative musical experience, uh, apart from uh, the American musicals, was listening in my very first experience of live opera in the 70s in Australia to Joan Sutherland singing, would you believe, Lucia de Lammermoor and great big cavernous theatre in Melbourne. I'd never been to the opera before, listened a bit, of course. And hearing Joan Sutherland sing that mad scene, I mean, you read about tingles going up and down your spine. The tingles were surging up and down my spine then and have done ever since. It's a wonderful, exhilarating piece of music. It is, and she was such a wonderful example of an Australian... Opera singer. <laughs> You're listening to Profiles on WFIU. I'm Moya Andrews, and our guest today is Professor the Honourable Gareth Evans. He is the Chancellor of the Australian National University in Canberra. You were Foreign Minister for eight years, eight long years. You must have had some very interesting and memorable experiences in that role. Well, I sure did, and we've talked about the Cambodian peace plan as one of them, and uh, a lot of things were happening around the Asian region in particular, and we were developing strategies for economic and security cooperation. We were developing strategies for saving the Antarctic from oil drilling and exploration mm -hmm. and negotiate a big international treaty to that effect. But um, a lot of it, of course, was related to just reshaping the post-Cold War world and being involved in, in that transition. And um, not that Australia, as just a, a middle power country, was ever going to be able to do anything by ourselves, but working with our friends, working with our allies, working with coalitions of like-minded people in the region and worldwide, we... We did do a lot of things, and um, in particular, I worked very closely with successive American administrations, and uh, 
you know, had some some quite fascinating encounters there. I remember my uh, my first encounter with Jim Baker, who was Secretary of State, of course, under the Bush Senior Administration, and a very professional, very tough, very effective, but very professional and very good, very good Secretary of State. My first encounter with him, I think I'll always remember that, because um, the Australian Prime Minister had done something fairly provocative. He'd made a speech a few days earlier just before my visit to Washington, which he was proposing the establishment of a new regional organisation in Asia, which actually, uh, in Hawke's formulation of it, actually excluded the Americans. This was the mm. Pacific <laughs> Economic Cooperation Body. And Baker was... <laughs> he really confronted me with those steely blue eyes of his and really laid the mark of Zorro on me. It was my, my first encounter with him. Um, really told me in no uncertain terms what he what he thought of, of that misadventure by the Australians. You are allies, what the hell are you doing? That's not the behaviour of an ally. That was intriguing, but um, I, I got to forge a very close relationship with Baker and a um, very good example of the way I think you can work with, you know, the big guys, smaller guys and big guys can work very cooperatively together in a relationship that's not one of total acolyte dependence. Mm, um, mm. I remember Baker in particular calling me up on one occasion. He was flying across the Atlantic at the time. It was a late night in, in Australia. He said, I've been thinking about this chemical weapons uh, problem. That issue's been stuck in Geneva, being negotiated multilaterally uh, you know, for 15, 20 years now. Nothing's happening. We want to do something about it, but we're too big and ugly to do it. Nobody's going to like the Americans taking an initiative on this any more than they like us taking an initiative on anything else. You guys have shown a little bit of uh, spirited independence recently, uh-huh. much to my unhappiness, but let's make a virtue of necessity. Why don't you guys pick up the pieces on this? Why don't you try to bring in the global chemical industry into this picture? Because we all know we've got to get those guys involved if we're going to get an effective enforcement regime, because chemical weapons do, uh, you know, by definition, deal with dual use uh, industrial chemical. And why don't you try to unravel, he said, that uh, deadlock we've got in Geneva. So Interesting. We, um, and we, we did just that, and we, we took the lead on that, and that was one of the major initiatives of, uh, of my period in, in office. But, um, but Baker was uh, just generally a very uh, intriguing guy. I, I remember once saying to him in the context of uh, the United Nations, saying to him, you know, the trouble with you, Jim, is you've got, a, you've got a reflexive prejudice against the United Nations. And he looked at me and he said, well... No, I don't have a reflexive prejudice. I've got a considered prejudice. (laughs) So uh, that was fun. And I mean, on one other memorable occasion, (laughs) I've forgotten the context now, but but he said to me, well, sometimes, Gareth... You've just got to rise above principle. <laughs> How interesting. So, uh, you know, he was a hard-headed yes. realist, but um, but a very good creative thinker. And that was a good foreign policy administration. I'm, I'm a Labor Party person in Australian terms. I'm a Democrat in American terms. But that was a very good administration to work with. And, uh, and I had equally interesting encounters with uh, you know, the Democrats, Warren Christopher, Madeleine Albright, working with the Clinton administration. You don't seem to have had any problems working with big countries when Australia is, as you say, a middle-sized country. It hasn't been something that uh, has caused you to feel as though you're being told what to do by the big guys. Well, I don't think countries like us should be spooked uh, by the big guys. And I think we increase our influence to the extent that we don't just lie around like puppy dogs with four paws 
waving and tongue lolling. If you treat your allies in that way and you believe you can't possibly say boo and you can't possibly you know, take a step out of line, you're not going to be taken very, very seriously. You're not going to get much time and attention. You're going to be taken very much for granted. And I think you know the lesson of my eight years as foreign minister working with the US in particular was that a healthy show of independence from time to time is very healthy for that larger relationship. And I've given you one fruit of that, exactly. the, uh, the chemical weapons exercise. Mm. I think had we known to be, had we been perceived to be just completely um, a spokesperson for whatever it is the Americans told us to say, we would not have been able to pull that off. And Similarly, probably with the Cambodian diplomacy and so on, the fact that we were seen as uh, our own, our own person, mm. our own, with our own set of interests and uh, and values uh, at work. I mean, did help. Well, would you advise young people to go into politics or into foreign affairs? Two different things. Going into politics, you have to have a very, very thick skin. Um, I don't think anybody has an unadulterated, you know rising graph to describe their experiences. It's all downs accompanying the ups and in this age of extremely intrusive social media and so on. You know, this is fantastically privacy invading. It's fantastically, you know, there are endless humiliations along the way. I mean, um, you have to have a a very, very thick skin indeed. Um, And I think you know, all people who get to high places in politics are just a little bit nuts um, around the edges. I mean, they do have some sort of, they're not normal people. They don't, because they have abnormal reserves of resilience. They have abnormal. Well, they're certainly driven. Well, you've got to be driven, but you've also got to have a capacity to deal with um, with the downsides. You've got to have a capacity to deal with, the, you know, the humiliations and the embarrassments, which are bound to occur at various points along the way. And uh, you know, no people of normal sensitivity go into this business, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't advise people of normal sensitivity to go into it. But that said, I mean, we do want the best and the brightest to be our political representatives, and in our governments, we we don't want the also runs, and we don't want the time servers, and we don't want the, you know, the egomaniacs who've got no compensating capacity to go with it. So, it's a tough call. It's a very unhappy state of affairs where you've got to have very large reservoirs of financial support to get into politics. And I think, you know, that's one of the unhappy things about probably the American scene at the moment, which uh, we've managed so far to largely avoid, I think, in Australia and a lot of other countries through public support for political parties, monetary support and, you know, very strict rules about um, campaign financing. But uh, it's not a lot of fun. Foreign affairs, on the other hand, I mean, I think is a fascinating career uh, for anyone to get involved in, whether you do so by way of being formally uh, a diplomat and applying for entry to State Department or whatever, or one of the other departments of state that that operate a lot uh, overseas. That's one way of doing it, but it's not the only way, of course. Um, There's a whole world of non-government organisations out there, um, including, for example, the one that I ran for 10 years out of Brussels, the International Crisis Group which are involved very, very directly in addressing complex international policy issues and devising strategies and then advocating solutions and working directly with governments to implement them. So there's a world of opportunity uh, out there. 
and uh, I certainly hope that the School of uh, Global International Studies here um, you know, does operate as it wants to do, as a school training people, not just in you know, the formal disciplines no. of international affairs, but um, also in some of this policy-relevant stuff. Because I think in the, the world as we now see it, as interdependent as it is, as complex as it is, you're just not going to be able to survive as a country in future generations without a, a deep, deep understanding of the way the rest of the planet is, is operating. And uh, you can only do that by uh, developing these sorts of professional skill sets. And I hope very much that many, many people choose this kind of career. Now, when you were in Brussels, did you have a lot of unpaid interns? <laughs> yeah, we did. Uh, uh, I feel pretty guilty about that. Uh, we had a total professional staff of about a, by the time I left, about 130, 140 worldwide. And we had about 60 to 90 interns each year uh, for three or six month period. And all of them, I hate to say unpaid, but that was the reality. We couldn't afford to to pay people. And people were clamoring for that opportunity because, of course, if you are going to get into uh, this, this career, um, you... Entry-level jobs are not just there for the taking. You've got to demonstrate to potential employers, public or private um, or non-profit, that you have some experience. And um, so, you know, that internship experience was, I think, a very valuable one for the army of youngsters who went through it. And certainly we benefited enormously from their intelligence and, and vibrancy and just enthusiasm. But the thing that worries me is that wouldn't you have to come from a well-to-do family to be able to engage in a in an well that's that you know, that is that is the downside that's the downside but look the reality is our budgets were so incredibly tight nobody was giving us money if there's philanthropists out there willing to support very directly you know payment for interns to have these kind of experiences that's wonderful but governments and foundations and the people on whom we relied for our financial support basically weren't doing that and um, you know this was just something that we couldn't afford to do uh, but uh, you know that's that's the downside and I mm. mean the Mm. The egalitarian in me, the uh, you know the Labour Party socially responsible person in me uh, feels bad about that. But the other part of me says, well, at least we did have the chance of giving a lot of people. And of course, a lot of um, a lot of universities, um, particularly US universities, are able to support less well-off youngsters to have these sorts of experiences. Because That's, of philanthropy. Because of philanthropy. I mean, and because there is this culture of philanthropy in this country, which is not shared anywhere else, which is a, a, a truly wonderful thing. And um, and so it is the case that a number of kids who would not otherwise have had the family backing to be able to have this sort of experience with us were able to do so. But that wasn't really true, of course, of, uh, of youngsters from other parts of the world. And no. uh, about them, I, I still feel the guilt that I've just described. Tell us a little bit more about what you've done since you left your political um, responsibilities. I know that the responsibility to protect is one of the central thrusts of your work. Tell us about the concept. The way in which I got into this was through being asked to chair a big international blue ribbon commission addressing the consensus-free zone which existed in the 1990s about how to react to these genocide, mass atrocity crime situations. The concern being that uh, from the global south developing world, 
that um, it's all very well to talk about the horror of genocides and so on, but any acknowledgement of a right to intervene, any acknowledgement of a right of humanitarian intervention was something they, they felt deeply troubled by because so many countries in the global south uh, had relatively newly won independence. They had long memories of colonial or imperial overlords engaging in civilizing missions of one kind or another. They were very conscious of their fragility and they were concerned that if they acknowledged a right of intervention, uh, then they would lose their newly won sovereign independence. So you had that stream running very, very hard internationally. But on the other hand, you had lots of people in the global north saying it's absolutely intolerable that these genocides and atrocity crimes are continuing to occur. We've got to do something. But doing something in the 90s was really only perceived in terms of military intervention. It was send in the Marines or do nothing. They were the options. And that's why there was such a lack of consensus, because there was this fear and anxiety about military stuff in the South and talk of the right to intervene in the North. So this commission that was established as a Canadian initiative in, in the year 2000 was an attempt to try to find a new global consensus about how to respond to these situations, which would bridge that divide I've just described. So we came up in this, this commission that I chaired or co-chaired with the concept of the responsibility to protect which obviously changes the linguistic framework. You're no longer talking about the right, but the responsibility of countries. And you're talking not about intervention as the primary buzzword, but you're talking about protection. So you're looking at the issue from the perspective of those men, women, and children who've died or been tortured or suffered so immeasurably. So the so, language was So critical. the language was important. The language is always important in the way in which you conduct international policy making. And we also changed the frame of reference. We said, look, this is not just about military action. We may need military action in extreme cases, but it's about prevention. It's long-term prevention. It's short-term prevention when early warning signs like hate propaganda start to become evident. It's about forms of reaction to these situations other than military ones. It's diplomatic naming and shaming, pressure, it's sanctions, it's arms embargoes, it's threats of prosecution in international criminal courts. It's all that repertoire of responses. But at the centre is people. But at the centre is people. And what we said is there are three kinds of responsibility here. There's the responsibility of the states themselves where this stuff is happening, not to allow it to happen and not to perpetrate it, of course, themselves. There's the responsibility of other states in the wider international community, not just the big guys and not just the big military guys, but the responsibility of states generally to assist vulnerable states if they're in a mood to be assisted with aid, development support, or even perhaps sometimes military support if they wanted to deal with a, an exploding situation which they can't manage themselves. So the responsibility to assist. And then thirdly, there was this notion of the responsibility to engage in a more robust fashion if a state had manifestly failed to protect its own people and the situation was deteriorating or had already deteriorated into serious atrocity crime, in which case you then talk about more coercive measures and ultimately, in very, very extreme and exceptional cases, uh, military action. But the whole idea was to recognise that sovereignty had its limits. Sovereignty, state sovereignty, was not a licence to kill. Sovereignty carried with it a huge responsibility. And that was a big conceptual shift mm, for the international mm. community to adopt. And our report articulated all this. And five years later, 
after a long and complicated story, it gets picked up and adopted by the UN General Assembly at the 2005 World Summit unanimously. So since then, we've had, on the books anyway, a new global norm saying there is a responsibility to protect. This is stuff is everyone's business, not no one's business. And we've had some successful applications of that in the Kenya post-election violence situation in 2008, which some people may remember, a a very Rwanda-looking-like situation, which was nipped in the bud by people talking about responsibility to protect, and a diplomatic, not a military intervention, a diplomatic intervention, which turned things around. And then, of course, we had in Libya in 2011, this agreement in the Security Council when Colonel Gaddafi first of all, started mowing down unarmed demonstrator mm. in, the, in the streets in the early stages of the Arab Spring, and then threatening to march on the city of Benghazi just along the coast with tens of thousands of people at risk of massacre. Uh, the UN picked up this theme, Responsibility Protect. The Security Council agreed uh, on military measures to deal with it, and thousands of lives were unquestionably saved. And if the UN had acted anything like as robustly or as quickly back in the 90s in the case of Rwanda or the case of Srebrenica, many, many hundreds of thousands of people would be alive to tell the tale today. So that was a, a success. But you know, since then, we've had problems. The Libyan case turned sour because instead of just being conceived and implemented as a civilian protection operation... US, UK, France, the big three in the Security Council, which were leading the military operation, decided very quickly that um, you know they were determined to have full-scale regime change and to fight a full-scale war to get rid of Gaddafi, not just to, to curb him. That did not carry with it uh, consensus uh, of the other major countries on the Security Council, mm-hmm. not least because they weren't consulted in this change of of uh, concept of operations, and that led then to the paralysis over the Syrian um, situation, which was came to explode about the same time, and that paralysis, of course, continues to this day. I don't think there ever would have been a majority on the Security Council for military intervention in the case of Syria, and was complicated further by the, the Russian commitment to the Assad yes. regime. But I do think um, that it was possible very early on to have a strong condemnation of the Assad regime's behaviour. It certainly was possible in those early months of 2011 to contemplate arms embargoes and sanctions and so on being imposed or threats of international prosecution, which would have made a difference. But because things went pear-shaped in Libya, that didn't happen, and we're bearing the consequences now of full-scale horrible civil war. So This responsibility to protect stuff um, is not a done deal by any means. There's a long way to go uh, to ensure that it's effectively applied in every situation where it needs to be applied. But there is unquestionably a new standard of behaviour out there, a new set of accepted principles. The UN Security Council keeps using responsibility to protect language and in many other lesser situations, many peacekeeping operations around Africa and elsewhere, the concept is unquestionably being used. And there's a very large measure of international consensus about it. It's just that in these very hard cases, they're always going to be very difficult. Yes, but it's a work in progress and it's made a tremendous contribution to the way people think and an act? Well, I believe so. I believe so. I mean, I'm a, a bit of a congenital optimist about these things, as you suggested earlier on in this discussion. And of course, 
in international relations to be uh, an optimist about things, given all the news we read every day, makes one appear to be either naive or ignorant or outright demented, I suppose. But, um, but I've always been an optimist. I've always believed that optimism is self-fulfilling and self-reinforcing in a way that pessimism is also self-reinforcing in a very negative way. And that if you're constantly looking for ways of improving behavior, moving the game forward, even on issues as intractable as this world's apparent devotion to nuclear weapons, as useless as they are and as dangerous as they are, if you keep harping away at this stuff and thinking that things are achievable, thinking that things are doable, if only we can mobilize enough good people in enough of the right places at enough of the right times, then I think um, you know the world can and, and will be a better place. But we sure as hell have to keep working at it. It's not going to happen without it. And we have to keep educating the next generation. And we do, absolutely. And, and we thank you for your contributions in the past and also for the fact that you came here and helped us by using your wisdom to influence some of our students. And that is, I think, an important part of your work now as, a, as an elder statesman. Well, it's been a great pleasure to be here at, uh, at Bloomington, to be here at Indiana U, and um, I've really enjoyed it, and I've enjoyed very much talking to you this morning. Thank you so much, Mary. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure for me. I've been speaking today with Professor the Honorable Gareth Evans, who is Chancellor of the Australian National University in Canberra. Thank you for being with us. This is Moya Andrews for Profiles. Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found at our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios of Indiana University. James Gray is the producer. The studio engineer and radio audio director is Michael Paskash. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles. Profiles.